Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your weekly look at the evidence around coronavirus. Last week, we focused very much on the ONS death data in the UK, and we'll be getting a little update on that. But uh, this week, we are going to be looking a bit more broadly at ethics and generally at waste and research. As always, I'm joined by our two favourite EBM nerds, Helen MacDonald, resting GP and UK research editor for the BMJ. Hello, Helen. Hi, Duncan. And Carl Hennigan, GP, professor at Oxford and editor-in-chief of BMJ EBM. Hi, Carl. Hi, Duncan. As always, Carl, you've had another busy week and we saw you are... talking to national media on Newsnight with David Spiegelhalter, who was our guest last week, talking a little bit about uh, that ONS data. Now, David last week suggested that uh, he thought there was going to be another peak because of the way that data is collected. Did we see some of that? Yeah, no, it's very interesting. The Office for National Statistics, ONS, each week on a Tuesday updates their data set. And I have to say they're doing an amazing job in improving the granularity of their data, putting more evidence in. What we saw in what we call week 15 up to 10th of April, there were 18,516 deaths registered compared with a five-year average of 10,520. So that's an excess of 7,996 deaths, 75% more than what we'd expect at this time. In week 14, we had 6,000 excess deaths, so it's ticked up again. And there are lots of very important caveats in the data. For instance, of the 7,996 excess deaths, 6,213, 78% mentioned COVID, but 22% did not mention COVID on the death certificate. A couple of important issues as well is that greater than 70% of all the deaths occurred in over 75. So this is disproportionately affecting elderly populations in a devastating way. But there's one really important issue, I think, within the coding that was very interesting for me, was one of the aspects about SARS is it's the clues in the name, it's sudden acute respiratory syndrome. So one of the things that I considered within SARS was that you were preparing for a viral pneumonia problem that required all the ventilators because you get this sudden acute respiratory problem that requires ventilation and oxygen. But the interesting issue is, if you look at all respiratory disease deaths, that's and they're coded ICD codes between J0099, you don't need to know that. But in week 15, there were only 1,810 deaths with that code on their death certificate. And that's actually a decrease of 14% compared with the previous week. So that suggests that the majority of deaths that are being occurring are not predominantly respiratory and are caused by other conditions, because particularly on a death certificate, if it was pneumonia, you would have that on there. In a flu outbreak, when you get excess deaths, about one third of all deaths have pneumonia on their certificate. So these raise uh, important questions, I suppose, about the the natural history of COVID, and we'll be wanting to pick that up um, in another episode, I think. One question that David, or 
the three things that David thought um, might be uh, suggesting some of the, the the excess deaths there that didn't have a, a direct COVID related line on the on the death certificate were because there were we'd had a mild winter and there were a lot of frail elderly people we might have expected to die from flu or whatever else in that period who didn't um the fact that there might be you know reluctance to to diagnose covid if that wasn't absolutely the the obvious cause of death um and then finally because there are these people who might not be going into hospital even though they needed to did any of that become more clear well i think the proportion of people who were recorded went up from last week to 80 percent. so i think it's clearer that the coding is getting better. And actually what you might see is a tendency to over-attribute now because COVID is everywhere. So the potential in hospitals is if you think a patient's had it, you're likely to put it on the death certificate. What will happen in the light of days when we come back is we can't tell this now. We'll be particularly looking at those that died from it versus those that died with it. And over the next six months, we'll be looking at the ONS data to look at what the overall pattern looks like. We have come in into the winter with a very mild seasonal effect. So if you look at the overall data, it suggests we've got about 10,000 excess deaths for this point in the year, which is less than the COVID because there are less deaths from the seasonal effect of influenza. There's another thing also that happened this week that we think is a really positive move. NHS England have now started reporting their data by the date of death, as opposed to the day that they get to find out about it. And that's incredibly important, is when we get these daily announcements that says there's 680 deaths today, that doesn't actually mean that. What it means is we're being made aware of 688 deaths, and they then get back a portion to which date they actually occurred. And that's incredibly important. So like yesterday's went right back to 23rd of the March. We can't quite understand what's happening there. But actually, they're finding about, about deaths now that could have occurred a month ago. But when you do that, one of the things is if you look at the shape of the data now, the peak deaths occurred on the 8th of April. And it started to generally slow down. The only thing caveat to that is the concerning picture that's happening in nursing homes. Because if you think about it, if a third of all nursing homes potentially have the infection, the mortality in that age group is incredibly high. It could be 15%. And that's where you can get a, a sort of second spike in deaths because we have likely failed to shield nursing homes and that vulnerable population. And you spoke about that last week, and I'm sure this is a topic we're going to be coming back to. Um, great. Well, there is a, a quick update on that data for you. So in talk evidence, we usually have some start stops. Uh, we're doing it slightly differently again this week. And Helen, you've started to think a bit more about the ethics in guidelines. I have. We've talked a bit about the problems of guidelines in a crisis on this show before, and med medical ethicists seem to me to be playing a more prominent role because I could see them being mentioned, um, and I've not noticed that before. And why is that? 
I think there's often reasonable quality evidence, which is quite key to informing guidance. And in COVID, this doesn't readily exist. And secondly, a lot of these public health recommendations which are being made around isolation and also clinical guidance on approaches to triage and escalation of care involve value judgments. So I was really intrigued to speak to ethicist Julian Sheether. He's a medical and humanitarian ethicist working for the British Medical Association, as well as for Medicines Sans Frontieres and other NGOs. And I asked him about ethics, guidance and COVID-19 and asked him to share some of his ethical insights. One of the extraordinary things about this pandemic has been the sheer scale of ethical problems that it's given rise to. The first thing you need to do is to be very, very alive to the fact that this is a value issue. It is not just a technical issue. It is not just a matter of doing sums. It's really saying, well, what are the values in place? Let's identify what values are in place. So on the one hand, you know, economic goods are not just about cash. It's not just about cold, hard, indifferent cash. If we don't have a a functioning economy, how do we fund the health service? These goods are profoundly interconnected and making these complex calls is, is a huge exercise in political ethics. But we need to be clear, very, very clear that these are value based choices. And once we've identified that values are engaged, we can begin to dig down into what the actual issues are. You begin to see a big, big call on health services. Well, what happens if you have to choose between different people? Who gets access to to fundamental life-saving goods, ventilators, ECMO machines? All of these kinds of issues take on an ethical ethical ramifications at a slightly different level and then you you know then you go down to 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 individual clinician patient facing dilemmas and do you see the ethical issues being dealt with well on the whole or Hmm. How, how do you feel when you look at what's being put out there i mean one of the things at the moment is given some of the decisions that that doctors may have to make, they're not making them now, we hope they don't ever have to make them, but but given that they may have to make triage decisions in the future, we would like to see more national guidance, kind of joined up guidance. We, the BMA stepped into the breach. Mm. There was a, we felt there was a clear need to prepare doctors for the kinds of problems they may have to face. Um, but it would be great to see more national, coordinated, joined up guidance should that come about? I think that's right, because it, it's hard to understand, isn't it? I think as a member of the public, why in one area you might be suitable for admission or escalation and then somewhere else you wouldn't be. That that might feel quite unfair to people. So if we took the idea of um, triaging or um, rationing services, what, what are the key issues that um, guideline makers national or local should be thinking about? I I think one of the urgent issues here is to ensure that decisions are made on clinically relevant data and information. One of the things we're hearing, understandably, we're hearing a lot about is deep concerns among people from the disability communities. The the very fact that they have a disability might itself disadvantage them, may may mean that they are deprioritised for treatment. We need to be absolutely clear that we identify what are the clinically relevant factors if triage 
is becomes necessary. And that means that clinicians need to work very closely with ethicists because those are clinically relevant factors that need to be identified. We know, for example, that invasive treatment in ICU can be demanding, can be highly burdensome. You wouldn't want to put people through that if they're not going to benefit from it or if the burdens are going to be overwhelming. So it's identifying clinically relevant factors without falling foul of kind of uh, of, of of inappropriate uh, 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 and unlo- potentially unlawful discrimination. And I think a lot of clinicians will worry about um, the legal implications of um, rationing decisions, which is why I think a lot of them would welcome national level guidance um, to, to assist and support them in that thinking, to, to be clear that they're using accepted and well thought through best practice how how to what extent do um legal implications or ethical implications differ in a crisis situation or or a situation that's sort of so uncertain are there are there sort of special rules or special thinking that comes into play yeah, to help interesting us? i mean what ordinarily in say clinical ethics in healthcare ethics the moral focus is always on the best interests of the individual patient But if you have a finite set of life-sustaining health services and you get hit by overwhelming need, you do have to morally reorientate and say, these are very finite services, this is overwhelming need. How do we choose between these patients, all of whom have legitimate health needs, but we can't get anywhere near meeting all of it? How can we maximise the benefit from the resources we've got and that's a brutal mm. shift. And nobody wants mm. to get there. We're not there at the moment. We're hoping we don't get there. But that is a brutal shift. And that's what the guidance, for example, that we've been working on is designed to address. But it it means having to make, potentially having to make some pretty wrenching decisions, heart-wrenching decisions. Jeannie, you've also done some work in lower resource settings. Yeah. Um Tell us about the specific challenges that COVID is is bringing up there. Well, I, I look at it with enormous trepidation. I've got to be honest with you. If you think of NGOs, organisations going into into incredibly resource poor settings, sub-Saharan Africa, the Central African Republic, countries that are just emerging from Ebola crisis, countries that have appalling shortages of even basic kind of uh, health services and then over that you roll or you or this tsunami of COVID-19 simply rolls across that it, it, I find it terrifying to be honest with you but I'm hearing stories from all over um, resource poor, all over the world in resource poor settings saying they are simply clinicians are simply going to have no PPE the the supply lines are almost entirely shut off they may have to withdraw from even providing the health services that they have been struggled to they've struggled to to provide over the over recent decades so i am profoundly concerned about it and i don't think there's a single person with an eye on health services in resource poor settings that isn't looking at this with considerable alarm well that's a very important point from from uh, julian at the end there um, I think Julian's reflections on PPE and lower resource settings are very striking. I guess there were two two other points that cropped up for me. One of the bigger points that Julian made was around how complicated decision making in COVID is and how 
it involves science, it involves economics, it involves values, it's very complicated. And one of the reflections um, that I had listening to a lot of the messages that we get from the UK government is that we keep hearing that they're acting on the best science and that's really the thing that's guiding them. And my conversation with Julian really made me think more deeply about whether that's enough and sort of cynically it feels nice to be able to to maybe pass the buck to science if you get it wrong but I wish that we heard a little bit more from officials about some of those other factors that Julia mentioned. I think the point for clinicians which um, struck home for me was this thing about the national guidance and I have a massive conflict of interest here because I wrote an opinion piece of a few weeks back sort of saying that I think that this is needed, particularly on these ethical issues. And just being sure that if there are guidelines being made that do triage or ration, that the evidence has been considered, these aspects of discrimination and what is legal has been considered, the ethics has been considered. We didn't hear in that clip from Julian, but he did encourage clinicians to escalate their concerns both locally and and more broadly um, nationally, if necessary, if they felt uncomfortable around some of the changes that were being proposed in care around the pandemic. I suppose on that, just picking up on that point about passing the buck to science, that's implied that there is some monolithic science answer to these things, as opposed to being very dependent on the questions that you're actually asking and mm. you know the place from which you're standing when you ask them. Carl? So, I, I, so first thing is, I, I slightly have a problem with science, and I would say that because I'm all about the evidence, and I have been for 25 years now. Science is about discourse, disagreement, about projections, whereas evidence is about trying to understand what we know based on the data at hand. And there was an incredibly important point that was made is that you only give interventions to people for whom they will derive benefit. Therefore, if you're referring a person into hospital who is elderly in a nursing home, has disability, the primary reason is, are they going to benefit? If they're not going to benefit then they're going to benefit from staying put. It's the same as the ITU. And I think what's happened here is we've panicked. And many of the models said we're going to be overwhelmed eightfold. And actually, first to say is in the early days, it looked like that, but we haven't been overwhelmed. And actually, it's potentially some people have been treated inappropriately because we may have over-treated them. But the primary thing about being a doctor is to always think of that one thing and then you are the patient advocate to inform on the next decisions. Now I got a tweet that was really interesting and I felt this was really important because this is where I uh, go away from the guidance and the guidelines because people were it was a tweet which said when do you ever feel confident as a doctor in your decision making and it really made me think about this issue And I felt, actually, it took me about 10 years in clinical practice. And I started to feel more confident. But there's always a patient every time I'm doing my urgent care where it makes me feel uncertain, not quite sure about the evidence is in place. I'm not sure what the best course of action is. But I think our job is always to consider how much benefit this person will get and I think that's where the values come in. Now, where we failed is, compared to our colleagues like in Germany, is it's about capacity. 
if we'd have had enough hospital beds here and enough ICUs, it wouldn't have been an ethical decision. It would have been about um, a decision about evidence. And so I think we need to get back to the core issues. We shouldn't be talking about guidelines saying, actually, it's about decisions who we might treat. We need to say, actually, we need a structure that says, how many beds do we need going forward and in and how many ICU beds we do so we can make sure we treat those people who are likely to benefit and keep those who are not in the home setting. Yeah, I think it's also about trust as well, isn't it? And, pu- and public trust. And I think if you're having an open conversation with the public around, are you likely to benefit from this treatment? You just need to make clear that that's what's behind this guidance. And that's different to the situation that um, Julian and I were talking about in the podcast, which is what happens when there isn't enough of something and you might have to then start rationing and triaging. And But I think in the way that some guidance has come out, it's been a bit unclear which of those situations it's been meant for. Um, and a sense that some of these um, factors that have been linked to more severe COVID outcomes such as um, particular age groups or hypertension or heart failure, um, concern that those might be used in a crude way to say, well, if you have this condition, then you wouldn't be suitable for this for this particular um, type of escalation or treatment. So, look, this is the point where when I get into these discussions, I always default back to the original definition of evidence-based medicine. And sorry, folks, is if it's boring, you've heard this before, but this is a beautiful moment to remind people that it's about the integration of the best available evidence, the patient values, which is what we've just heard, and it's about clinical experience and expertise. And all of them are so important. And the latter is incredibly important when the evidence is missing. You default back to, and that experience is really important. The wily old clinicians here who can look up and go, do you know what? I had experience in these situations before. We've had this type of patient before. The scenario is they're unlikely to benefit. Let's try this, sit tight, hold back. And I think dealing with uncertainty, understanding expertise and experience is something we've got to renew out of all this because we will be faced with lots of decisions and we are every day with lots of decisions where the evidence is not certain and we have to respond in a way that brings forward values and experience and expertise. It's like a a sermon that really, isn't it? I apologise, but I I reeled that out and I've reeled it out for 20 plus years at this moment. It feels perfect. And communicate it well, Carl. That's also key. <laughs> I'm sorry because about the no conflict of interest. there's no point in the EBM thing happening if, if people don't understand that that's what's happened to them. Well, look, I think this is where uh, what's been heartening in all this is the reaffirmation of healthcare, the NHS, and what's most important. We're putting a stamp and in the ground a marker that says we want this to be in a better shape going forward. But I am going to say that this idea of experience and expertise is incredibly important to being a great doctor and I think it's it's when you see people do that in action be able to communicate so people can make informed decisions it is okay for people to use their values and say do you know what I'm happy to stay here 
I want to stay in this setting. I can see that actually I might derive benefit, but it's my choice. That's the real ethical dilemma here for me, is being able to inform people so that they can feel comfortable about their choices. Mm, absolutely. And I suppose uh, the bit that struck me was um, when he was talking about, you know, the people who are disabled or, or, you know, in other ways, marginalised, being particularly worried about this. And it, it occurred to me, um, how involved are they as a, as a particular group in, in any guideline development, you know? Well, we've seen some of the guidelines due to the need for speed, I think, in compromising on certain elements. And I think, unfortunately, one element which sometimes has been lacking has been public and patient partnership with particularly with some of the groups most vulnerable and I think that would be a nice thing for us to pick up on um, in in another podcast to hear both um, how partnership in research and guidance has been coming on through through the crisis. Yeah absolutely. Before we move on here's a quick message from our editor. Hello, I'm Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. During this COVID crisis, as at any time, healthcare workers deserve to work in safety. Join our campaign for proper PPE. Find out more at bmj.com forward slash wellbeing and at hashtags proper PPE and BMJ. Thank you. Right, back to the show. Have you seen anything interesting new research that's popped up that's that's caught your eye this week that we could have a very quick little update on? Yes, I've got one um, research paper which went up online on the 21st of April on BMJ, and this was looking at viral load and disease severity in patients uh, infected with SARS-CoV-2 in China. It doesn't have clinical implications as yet, but it's quite interesting. They evaluated viral loads at different stages of the disease. Well, sometimes, you know, this is not just about clinical stuff. These things are important when it comes to to talking about, you know, transmission and some of the big questions that we've been answering. So they looked at around 100 people. Um, most of them, about um, 74 of them had severe disease and 22 had mild disease. And they looked at the RNA viral load measures in different samples of body fluids. They looked at respiratory secretions, stool, serum and urine samples. They had about three and a half thousand of those samples and they found evidence of RNA in about 60 percent of patients stool, about 40 percent of people's serum, um, but very, very rarely in the urine. Only one person had it in their urine. And they found that the median duration of the virus in the stool was about three weeks, 22 days. Um, And this was a little bit longer than in respiratory samples, which was about 18 days, and in serum samples, which was about 16 days. They also found that there was a difference according to the severity. So in the respiratory samples, people with severe disease had evidence for around 21 days, whereas in mild disease, it was more like 14 days. They also found that virus duration was longer in people who were older than 60 and in male patients. So one thing that we don't know from this study is whether those people who are shedding um, viruses and those secretions, whether those um, secretions are infective or whether the virus is just in there, I guess, as a kind of dead item. I don't know enough about virology to comment (laughs) on that. Um, But yeah, there you are, a little update. 
I think that's an important point, Helen, about the shedding is there's a difference it's like between activated and inactivated virus. And I think what they're highlighting it is that it takes some time to get rid of the whole virus out of your body. It's a multi-system disease. It's not just in the respiratory tract, it's in the GI tract, it seems to get in all parts of your body, this virus. And once you've killed it, there'll be bits that require shedding for quite some time. So it doesn't surprise me. The problem in the media is this is being picked up as the virus is still there, you're still able to infect people, and that's not the case. So I think we should really need the next piece of evidence is to really dial down on this idea of activated shedding versus what I call inactivated shedding. How do you test for that, Carl? Can you tell the difference well, between the RNA? You, or? Well, you're beyond me. You're back to the science and away from the evidence. <laughs> and we'll get somebody on next week to help me with that because it's outside of my comfort zone. Sure. You can. The other thing which people might be interested to take a look at, we've talked a bit about the pharmacologic treatments for coronavirus disease. We talked about hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about remdesivir last week. And there is a nice review summary paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, which was published a few days ago, actually back on April the 13th, called Pharmacologic Treatments for Coronavirus Disease 2019. And if you're interested in just having an overview of all of the things being trialled and, and, and where the evidence is at the moment, that, uh, that can provide you with some information. So there we go. We've talked a little bit about guidelines and had a quick update. But as always in this podcast, we seem to be echoing back to the fact that the problems in EBM um, are just being amplified and, and exposed by what's happening in coronavirus. And uh, one of those problems that we've talked about before is waste in research. Now, uh, Helen, you went and talked to someone who's an expert in this about it. I did. Well, we're so keenly awaiting evidence on a whole host of COVID-19 prediction and prevention and treatment strategies. And Carl and I and some of our guests have expressed some concerns about the quality of evidence that we're seeing coming through around its coordination, its quality or its planning. And, And it really raises the issue of to what extent we could be wasting time and research And COVID aside, we know that we do have a big problem with waste and research. And I wanted to speak with Professor Paul Glasiew about this further. And Paul's the director of the Institute for Evidence-Based Healthcare at Bond University in Australia. And around 10 years ago, he, with others, estimated that around 85% of the research that we do is wasted, which is quite a horrifying figure. And Paul's been working on a systematic review related to covid And given his past experience quantifying waste and his current experience now, I wondered if he would refresh our memories on what we know and give us his reflections on what he's seeing in research on COVID so far. Over a decade ago, we calculated that 85% of research is wasted because of the questions asked or serious flaws in the design of the research or the conduct of the research um, that a lot of research, about half of it never gets published. And even the half that is published is so poorly reported that people can neither replicate it nor really apply it well. And all of those things add up. Some of those things have improved with the coronavirus research, like the non-publication because of the number of preprints that are going up. 
but some problems have increased. So I think we've seen misallocation of funding, um, the wrong questions being addressed. We've seen lots of flawed research, often getting media attention. Um, and we've also seen very poor reporting. We've been working on the, um, the rate of asymptomatic cases. One example of that, an early example of showing asymptomatic transmission, it turns out that the investigators didn't actually talk to the patient who was supposed to be asymptomatic. This was a case in Germany. Um, and it turns out that she probably did have symptoms. So that's an example of the sort of rushed research process. But we've also been doing a systematic review of these and on, largely on the preprints. I've never done this before. And the preprints are often so poorly reported that it's difficult to even tell whether you can include them um, in the review. So what do you think could be done to improve things? Well, so for us, for this particular case, the use of a reporting guideline in the preprints would have been useful. But I don't think there are any easy um, solutions to all of this. It's just a consequence of the breathtaking speed that we've been mm. seeing, which is important, um, but is also causing problems and miscommunication, I think, about what research is showing. And zooming away from what researchers are doing and to a broader um, kind of meta level, do you have any thoughts on the on the coordination of, of COVID research? Because one thing that's seemed striking as we've looked at some of the examples for the podcast, whether it was um, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir, there's, there's a lot of very small studies going on, um, sometimes um, open label, um, perhaps with um, very poor comparisons. Do you think there are issues around also just the quality of the design of some of these studies and the kind of duplication of, of effort perhaps across these questions, sort of how many trials on hydroxychloroquine do we need to get a reasonable answer to that question? So I think the, um, the international response has been good, but I agree there has been a lack of coordination. Um, a lot of groups are trying to coordinate things, but because there's no central body to coordinate research, um, people have often been putting out feelers to try and work out where mm. that's going on. Um, and it's been tricky. So WHO um, has been trying to do that for the vaccine trials, which are probably the most important trials we're going to be doing. Um, and they have suggested there be a coordination of the international effort so that there was effectively one control arm with all of the different vaccine arms. I think that sort of coordination would be a very good idea. And it's clearly a role that WHO could potentially play across the board. But of course, they've got a lot of other things on their plate as well. Um, and so it could be the research funders instead who get together. One of the things that we've found very striking in looking through um, clinicaltrials.gov and other registries of what research is going on is there has been a fantastic number of trials of treatments started up and underway the trials of vaccines are going along at breathtaking speed. So we've now got half a dozen that are now in there, at least phase one human type trials going on, which is just astonishing. Mm -hmm. But what we've failed to do from looking at the trials registries is to do the trials on improving what we're doing at the moment that's working. 
we don't have many things that are effective. We've got basically different types of social distancing, for example, and the um, hand hygiene and perhaps masks. That's still a great uncertainty. There are some other things that we could be looking at, like um, ventilation within rooms or the seas, even some interesting stuff about copper surfacing, for example. You might have seen the report that showed that um, coronavirus will live for several days on hard surfaces like steel or plastic, but if you copper coat the surface, it will only live for minutes or hours at best, much faster. So there's a lot of potential research that could be done to the things that we're doing at the moment, the sort of environmental and public health type interventions. But very few of those are going on, and I think that's a huge risk. It's a huge risk because no one's developed a corona vaccine in the past, and some of the experienced vaccine developers are saying, well, we hope it's there by the beginning of next year, but there's no guarantee when we may never get one, or at least not in the next several years, in which case the sort of public health interventions and environmental interventions that we have at the moment are what we're going to have to live with. The things that stood out for me from what Paul said was this lack of central body to coordinate research, which I guess in some ways is a strength because it gives people flexibility, but in, in something like a pandemic where, where we're wanting to ensure that we're we're doing things efficiently is is a compromise. And interesting to hear that the, the WHO are doing a good job with vaccine studies, but interesting also to contrast that to the less coordinated approach in other areas and, and potentially the neglect of some of those basic environmental and prevention strategies. Really interesting to hear Paul cautioning against us putting too many eggs in the in the vaccine basket. And I wonder for some of our listeners if, if his comments around preprints could be to some extent fixed by really making sure that people are using the best reporting statements, even when they're submitting their work to preprints through the pandemic, because people are having to look at preprints and act on them in a way that perhaps they wouldn't if speed wasn't of the essence. So just even basic things like showing your research to someone else before you submit it, just just to get another pair of eyes to see things that you might have missed. Yeah, those reporting statements, all the journals will want them anyway, so you might as well write your research in that way in the first place. Yeah, it's just that balance, isn't it, between speed and and quality. It's a sort of this balance between a socialist model and a capitalist model of research. And when we talk about socialist, it's a bit like you're going to have a central system that procures and decides on what research to be done. And although that sound, might sound appealing, what it will do is lead to more delays, slow down the process and slow down the innovation. And I have to say I'm at the Oxford University is they would be horrified if somebody tried to tell one researcher what to do. The the flip side is the capitalist model means there's more people doing all sorts of things. But the problem with that approach is there's so much waste now. You can't even see the wood for the trees. And people, we're now into month four. We still don't have an effective treatment. We seemingly have antibody tests that don't work, a, a huge majority of them. And more research evidence than ever before. So I think what this is about is it's not going to be solvable in this this outbreak. This is about now sitting down going forward and trying to get plans that people sign up to. Things like core outcome sets. 
trying to say here's a, a list of the treatments that you 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 can repurpose but also information on the sort of minimum sample size that will be required to have something useful and how are we going to deal with the the, the, the sort of ridiculous non-randomized small case series what should be happening with them is they should be just assigned to the bin of not relevant and trying to get a, a pool of data that says it's a bit like approved this is all we're going to look at and accept and if you do this fine but actually we at the who are going to focus on the stuff that actually is done well and give it a stamp of approval if you like this is the sort of stuff you should be looking at versus let's just leave all the other stuff there in the in the pool if you like of waste and in terms of you know the the environmental things, um, copper surfaces and and whatever else that Paul was talking about, are those kind of studies harder to do than a simple not a simple but an RCT of a of a drug, which is a kind of very obvious intervention? Well, there there are two things that come when I think about environmental, and, and correct me if I've got this wrong. The first is to say, I think we've discussed this, there is a, a complete lack of non-drug interventions. With non-drug interventions, people just assume they work. And, and one of the best examples right now is the mass debate. We're just going to go, let's do it. And countries are doing it. And what we'll do is end up doing non-randomized comparisons, which will be full of all sorts of problems. But the environmental exposures will be done lots of that work we'll look back retrospectively and look at things like temperature and all of that and latitude and they are difficult to interpret but I suspect we'll have so much data in this outbreak that we will be able to infer some interesting out sort of effects from the environmental exposures. So maybe some of these things that we're worrying about now are actually yeah will help us help us next time round. Now Helen you talked to him about the coordination uh, from the WHO, and he also mentioned funders as well. Mm, that was quite interesting. I was going to ask uh, Carl what he thought about that. I totally hear what you're saying around you don't want sort of micromanagement of your research agenda, but how could we strike a better balance between um, people being free to do what they think is necessary in terms of research with with also trying to identify what other priority areas that I guess would serve society best. Look, it's really important, that point, because there could be somebody out there who's diverging from the sort of herd, trying out some treatment or trying some strategy and comes up with something that could be groundbreaking. And that's how research works. The unexpected can just jump out from somewhere. You can't force people into a box and say, do this. And I suspect there'll be people looking at the data or looking and may come up with something that we didn't expect. But I think that's how research works. And we should never forget that. The question is, the waste problem comes when you think, oh, if you'd all them hydroxychloroquine trials, if you'd have done them with a minimum sample size and a bit more robust and followed up these patients in this way, by now we'd probably have an answer. I guess if that's those small studies couldn't get off the ground because because their local ethics committee would have said, well, you don't have enough people. They might have then been forced to think, well, let's call the next hospital over from us. Let's see if we can try and collaborate and, and pull some of the information. And then you start to see some of those those standard things. So sort of 
incentivizing um behaviors that are likely to lead to stronger research can i say we're having a, a bit of a rabble coming in onto the podcast which is very welcome and uh this is the uh, fun factor of this, but I'm going to try and stay on a serious point. For instance, I, 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 I'm going to write this up. I've often thought there should be a minimum sample size in randomized controlled trials, and that actually 100 people is a good starter. Because in 100 people, you can see some significant effects. And particularly if you're taking people with mortality of 15, 20%, you can start to see some really important data where you can immediately go, right, this is the sort of trial we should take forward. And what you want to do is to be able to stop the stuff that's not looking so good and go to the next level and the next level. And that's the, the point we want to get to, as opposed to still in this point going, Oh my gosh! Is is anything yet working? Uh, we're not quite sure. Does it guidance like that exist, Carl? No, but I'm going to write it up because I do think <laughs> you could have uh, this concept of a. Because one of the things I found quite difficult to understand is we spend a lot of time trying to come up with sample sizes, and when we've published it all, they're always underpowered. Anyhow. So actually, we'd be much better if we had a sort of, uh, my thinking is to have a standard sample size at the early trials, just do 100 patients. They have the core outcomes, but some of their smaller baseline problems might be a 1,000. You could actually model that based on the control event rate. Given the fact here the mortality is so high in hospitalized patients, you probably get away with 100. In the preventive treatment, you probably need about a 1,000. And we have looked at that because... Often we get too many trials that even go, we had 250 patients and it was underpowered. And that's why we need systematic reviews. So we could start to think like this about here's a minimum sort of sample size that would allow us to have some useful information based on the control event rates. This reminds me of that story about why... Uh... A p-value of yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure we'll get... just pulled out of the air like that. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get some statisticians now ringing in, going, "What does he think he's on about there? This is ridiculous." Actually, I was going to encourage them to write in because I just <laughs> over my statistical head, and I think someone needs to come back to you. <laughs> That's why you brought the children in just to shut me off. You're like, they know more than you. Get them in here. Yeah, next generation <laughs> of uh, of EBMers. Well, yeah, if perfect. you uh, are a statistician and you do want to uh, pick up on what Carl says, then if you go to bmj.com slash podcast, you can find out how to get in touch and uh, maybe we will hear you on air next week. Coming up in the future, we think we're going to be looking at a little bit more about the natural history of COVID. We want to know about recovery. We're going to be looking at some of the, uh, the evidence about you know, lockdown and how to get out of it in a sensible way. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Until then, it's uh, goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Take care out there. <laughs>